Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. I'm your host, Ian Andrews. I'm back from vacation and excited for this week's episode. But before we get to that, I must thank my colleague and occasional co-host, Kim Grauer, for filling in for me last week. So in this episode, I get to speak with Elena Natalinsky, the CEO of the Ironfish Foundation, about the new layer one privacy-focused blockchain that they're building. We start with a discussion of mixers, privacy coins, and what makes Ironfish different. Elena explains how Ironfish is balancing privacy and regulatory compliance. We get pretty deep into zero-knowledge proofs and how that technology is utilized in the Ironfish blockchain. After the episode, if you want to go deeper on these topics, we've included some great blogs in the show notes. Today, I am joined by Elena Natalinsky, founder and CEO at the Ironfish Foundation. Elena, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. I'm so excited for this conversation because I have to admit, I was not aware of Ironfish before your team reached out. And so I've been doing some reading on it to try and be conversant in the topic. And I'm super fascinated with this intersection of privacy and anonymity in crypto. And you and your team are working at the heart of that. So maybe we can just start with a quick overview for other people that haven't heard, like what is Ironfish? What are you all building? And then we're going to dive into a bunch of related topics. Perfect. Yeah. So Ironfish is a brand new layer one proof of work chain and every single transaction Ironfish is encrypted, meaning that it hides the sensitive information such as the sender, the recipient, the amount, asset type, and so on. We also have something called the multi-asset feature. And what we're really doing is we're building Ironfish to be the privacy platform for crypto to be like the Lego piece that other protocols can use for their privacy needs. And so right now, Ironfish is mainnet launched. We kind of view mainnet as step zero of launching this fundamental privacy platform. And then the next steps are going to be bridging to other chains so that we can actually support other assets from other chains on Ironfish to give them the best privacy. There's so much in there that we're going to unpack through the conversation, but I have to ask, (laughs) I have to ask, you've been working on this for a while, right? Ironfish launched in 2017. So six years in the making to this point. Is that right? No, 2017 is when I learned about Ethereum. (laughs) Ah, got it. Okay. Yeah, so I've been in crypto since 2017. Maybe we start there then, like what brought you into crypto and then ultimately led to launching Ironfish? Yeah, so I was a software engineer at Airbnb. And in 2017, I started to learn more and more about Ethereum. I went to a dinner at Protocol Labs house. Protocol Labs is the company behind IPFS and Filecoin. And everyone there was talking about Ethereum. So definitely was interested. I started to read more about it, started going to meetups and just learning as much as I could. And a few months afterwards, the very first ETH Global Hackathon was announced, ETH Waterloo. And if you remember the CryptoKeys project, for instance, that's when they unveiled their project. And so I went there and it was an incredible experience. You know, everyone there was extremely welcoming, open, and just extremely helpful. And that was when I realized I really want to be involved in crypto in some capacity. And it took me, you know, a year and a bit to finally quit my job at Airbnb and jump into crypto full time. Wow. Now, at the time you made that decision, did your former colleagues at Airbnb say, what are you doing running off into crypto? Or were they kind of jealous? Like, wow, this is the new, new hot space. And it's awesome that you've done this. 
I mean, Airbnb actually has a crypto like alumni system at this point. Like Brian Armstrong, who was at Coinbase, was actually Airbnb yeah. prior to that. Sure. And or ChangeDip was a company that was actually a crypto company that was acquired by Airbnb. And some people have since left back into crypto from that company. You know, there are other people from Airbnb that started their own crypto company. So I remember there was a Slack channel called Crypto <laughs> at Airbnb, and it like ballooned to 400 people and just always like lively conversation. So I think a lot, like, a lot of people are Airbnb because they were kind of already in the heart of Silicon Valley and had this mentality of, I don't know, I guess like sharing people's spaces. Crypto is actually a pretty natural thing for people to know about or to gravitate towards. Um, so yeah, we, there was a, I guess like a crypto club, so to speak, at Airbnb <laughs> that started out from this Slack channel, but we had like guest speakers come in and like <laughs> we had like quote unquote meetups within the, within the company. So when I did eventually leave, it wasn't as big of a surprise, so to speak, just because of my interests. And I was already sharing a lot of the things that I, that I was doing on the side. What made you want to tackle this challenge around privacy specifically? What was the attraction there? Yeah, I mean, when I decided that I wanted to go into crypto full time, I decided to kind of like work backwards. Like, let's assume that in whatever time horizon, crypto is going to win, it's going to be the fundamental payment system or programmable money, whatever. What are we missing to get to that future? And to me, like privacy was the biggest section of crypto that very few people were working on that I thought was extremely important. And, you know, the tech behind it is, is extremely cool. Even back in like 2018, 2019, when we really started to dig into it, it was pretty apparent that zero knowledge proofs were going to be the leading technology for privacy. And zero knowledge proofs are, you know, cutting edge cryptography, super cool tech, um, and something that I still believe is going to outlive crypto and like kind of spill over to other industries as well, which is kind of what it's doing already. So yeah, the intersection of like, this is a massive opportunity, this really much aligns with what I want to do and completes the thesis of what crypto is hoping to bring to people. I was going to ask you about that because I feel like I'm relatively new to the crypto space, only having gotten into it sort of in the last two and a half years. But going back, you know, and reading some of the early white papers and looking at some of the commentary from, say, 10 years ago, it seemed like the public nature of the ledger was part of the original design. Mm -hmm. And the mindset has shifted, I think, in the discourse to say, well, maybe it's not such a great thing that all transactions are publicly viewable by everyone all the time, forever. What's your take and position on that? Am I misreading the early days of the, the intent behind the public ledger? Have people just gotten smarter? What do you think? Yeah, so I think like firstly, Bitcoin already was a revolutionary tech and zero knowledge proofs only became like practically usable in like 2013, 2014, right? So there was definitely a gap between what Bitcoin brought to the table and when versus when zero knowledge proofs or privacy preserving tech really became like applicable. And yeah, so the way like Bitcoin validation works or any transparency validation works is based on transparency. So if I were to send you a Bitcoin, the way a full node would validate that transaction is they would have to see all my prior transactions going into my wallet to see that my wallet does indeed have these funds that I'm trying to spend so I can give that to you. So validation works on transparency. Now, what zero knowledge proofs bring to the table is they say, I can prove to you honest computation. So zero knowledge proofs are not necessarily give you privacy or scalability. They're just a tool to prove honest computation. And so now I can say, look, this transaction is encrypted, meaning that it hides this, the, this information, but I can prove to you that I've constructed it correctly and that you as the validator can have the confidence that the transaction is valid without the transparency aspect in order to validate that. 
It totally makes sense. And I'm glad you went there because I think zero knowledge proofs or ZK proofs is something that people hear about, but they don't have a deep understanding on. So this idea that I can prove possession of something without having to show it to you, I think is at the core of the idea. Is that is that a fair sort of summation of what you just went through? It's uh, proving that the computation is valid, which is a bit more nuanced. Okay. So for instance, like one example is, let's say I have a receipt, like a grocery store receipt, and the output of that receipt is like my total balance. And I can say, look, like the total balance for these groceries is like $10. And I can prove to you mathematically with a constant size proof that the $10 total sum is correct without showing you all the itemized lists. So the computation yeah. is correct. And I can say, look, given the output, meaning $10 and giving this proof, you can be confident in the fact that these groceries cost $10 without redoing the, the computation yourself. I can check out at the store and say, I owe you $10 because of the things I bought, but I don't have to show anybody all the candy that I'm purchasing and be exactly. embarrassed about, <laughs> about my choices and food, right? That's exactly um, it, yeah. So why has this ZK technology become the layer of choice for privacy in crypto? Like what's the appeal over alternative approaches or options? You mentioned that this didn't even really come into meaningful existence until maybe 2013. And I feel like I've only really started here about it in earnest over the last couple of years. What's changed? Well, so zero knowledge proofs were invented like 1985 by Shafiq Kalbazer, Sylvie McCauley, and Christoph Rockwell. I always forget the last person's name. But back then, it was like an interactive protocol, and it wasn't like really usable. <laughs> and so, in 2013, there was a paper by like IBM Research and Microsoft Research called the Pinocchio paper that kind of first made generic, dynamic, I guess, zk snarks. And zk snarks are just a type of zero knowledge proof. The snark stands for succinct non-interactive arguments of knowledge. And so in 2013 is like really when they just became like applicable to do anything. <laughs> but since then, there's been like a just an explosion of research in the space. So Zcash, if you're familiar with that project, they were the first to kind of pioneer of how to use zero knowledge proofs for the privacy aspect. And so the privacy actually comes from encryption and zero knowledge proofs prove that even though something is encrypted, I can still prove to you that it's valid. So again, zero knowledge proofs, they don't necessarily give you privacy. It's the encryption that gives you privacy. They just give full nodes the ability to validate that transaction without seeing it. But yeah, like in 2019 onwards, there's been like an incredible like surge of academic research into xenology proofs. And so now we have many more different types of xenology proofs with different drawbacks. And there's xenology proofs that have a trusted setup, ones that don't, and they can go into what that means. Um, and so it kind of opened up a landscape to do other things like ZK rollups, if you're familiar with that for scalability, and then ZK VMs, again, for scalability purposes. And so we just have so much more innovation happening now. This is awesome. I want to go back because you mentioned Zcash as being one of the first production implementations, at mm -hmm. least in the crypto ecosystem. Can you set up the differences between what you're building in Ironfish, something like Zcash, and maybe a mixer as an example? Because I think people maybe incorrectly lump all these together, and there's some pretty major technical differences between the three that'd be good to unpack. So a mixer is kind of like trying to <laughs> mix things. But if you're doing static analysis and you have any sort of sophistication, then you can very easily de-anonymize a mixer. So mixers are no longer popular because they provide pretty bad user experience. You have to wait a long time and then they give you pretty bad privacy. So then the next question is like, well, what is Zcash? So Zcash has two modes. It has transparent mode, which technically is almost identical to Bitcoin. And then they have shielded Zcash. And shielded Zcash is where the innovation zero knowledge proofs and encryption comes from. For Zcash, a transaction is fully encrypted, so it does not reveal who the sender is, who the recipient is. 
or what the amount is. And instead, everything's encrypted. And there's a ZooLaunch proof accompanying the transaction that validates it. In that way, it's definitely not a mixer because it's not mixing anyone's funds. You're still sending your own funds to someone else. It just so happens that it's hiding the sensitive transactional details. And in terms of what, what Ironfish is in comparison to all that, we did bootstrap off of Sapling, which is the privacy protocol for Zcash. And we've done some modifications for it such that Ironfish can support multiple assets. So we kind of view Ironfish as a chain agnostic privacy platform. And our goal is to bridge to other chains so that multiple chains can use Ironfish as a privacy platform. It's like one of the things that we're very eager to support is how do we support Bitcoin on top of Ironfish so we can have private Bitcoin for the very first time ever? How do we have stable coins on top of Ironfish so we can get to like a digital cash experience? So we view Ironfish as like, you know, we're not competitors to like Ethereum or any of those other chains. We're actually trying to augment, I mean, like add more value to existing crypto assets. This is fascinating. So in practical sense, I have ETH on the Ethereum network in my MetaMask. Let's just mm -hmm. make a really simple example. And I want to send some of that to you, but I want that transaction to be private. So I would bridge that ETH onto Ironfish and then I would send from my Ironfish wallet, presumably, to your Ironfish wallet, at which point you could keep the assets on the Ironfish network or you could bridge back to ETH. Exactly. Is that, you got it. And when I do that, like, is the asset on the Ironfish network similar to something like wrapped ETH where it's a... Uh, yep, you got it. it. There's another token. Does that mean that the native ETH is locked up in a bridge on the Ethereum network that you're also operating? Yes, on the first part. You know, our goal is to partner with other bridge operators so we can expand the Ironfish ecosystem. You know, the whole point of us launching Mainnet when we did is to kind of start the clock running of like, here is a finished product and how do we entice people to build on top of it? Like, this is our vision for privacy. This is our vision for Ironfish to be this privacy platform. And here's like literally this fundamental privacy platform that has been running for at least a month now that is like humming along quite nicely, stable, good to go. So here's, you know, opportunity for you to build. Really the goal here is how how do we convince other bridge operators to build those infrastructure rails for us? Or I shouldn't say for us, but for the Ironfish ecosystem. But ultimately, our goal is to do that. And so, you know, we're very eager to support those bridges as well. Cool. So somebody like Wormhole, for example, could say, okay, now we're going to enable bridging into the Ironfish ecosystem. And, and you don't have to operate a bridge. They do that. And then people can bridge from other chains as well. It's not like you need to go out and build multiple chains. Exactly. Very cool. And then I guess presumably like you could convince the Center Foundation to bridge Circle potentially onto Ironfish and then you get stable coins as well or create a native stable coin on the, the Ironfish protocol. Yep, exactly. So those those are all the things that we're, you know, definitely focusing on of like how to bring more value and how to support more assets. And do you imagine then that there are native DEXs or lending protocols or all sorts of the, you know, everything else NFTs that we see in the Ethereum ecosystem, do those start to exist natively or is it more of a private transit layer? How do you yeah. think about that? So the way we think about it is like, let's just focus on one thing, do it well. And once we get yeah. to a point where we think it's stable, then kind of inch forward to the next thing. So the very first step is 
you know, Ironfish is a privacy platform. How do we enable more assets to live in Ironfish? And there's just so much work that needs to go into that. Like, how do we make sure that the transition to and from Ironfish is smooth and seamless? How do we integrate with wallets? You kind of describe this journey of like, okay, I have MetaMask and then like, presumably I would get into Ironfish. Well, to make that all seamless, it's actually a lot of effort and a lot of work to make sure that like easy things actually are very hard to do. So that's like kind of our step one post mainnet. Again, mainnet was like step zero. Step one is like, how do we support multiple assets and how do we make sure that users are aware of how to do that and it's intuitive. And then, yeah, to your point, it's like, okay, great. Ironfish supports all these assets, but the reason why people use crypto is because they want yield or they want DeFi or they want NFTs or they want to do something with it. And so we are kind of thinking about like, how do we add programmability to Ironfish? Privacy plus programmability is almost like the holy grail of basically any privacy project. And partially because it's really hard to do. Like, what does it mean to have programmability in a fully private environment? What are you trying to hide? Are you trying to hide the state or the program itself or funds or just add anonymity to people? And so there's different protocols that actually kind of attack this in different ways. And the way we think about it is one way for us to support the, the use cases that you mentioned is how do we have a, like a layer two experience on top of Ironfish such that we're very explicit to our users. The layer one is always private. No matter what you do on the layer one, it always has the full-blown privacy guarantees. However, once you go into the layer two experience, you give up that privacy for four programmability, but you kind of have the privacy benefit of always relying on a very private layer one. Interesting. I'm curious, I was reading some of your documentation before we jumped in to record. And so step one is download Node.js, <laughs> do an NPM install, and then you know start the node that you're actually running locally. And the instructions are super straightforward, well-organized, but I could imagine that's like a fairly intimidating getting started experience for the average like crypto ecosystem participant today. But on your website, like you highlight and you actually just said it, you know, usability being key design goal for the entire thing, which I think is so lacking generally in crypto. Like I was really excited to see that as, as a premise of where you're building. What's the roadmap and direction that you wanna take things there? Like what is the intended or kind of future state ideal for a typical end user? We did launch mainnet again, like step zero, like we launched it early totally. so we started getting feedback and yeah, usability definitely matters a lot to us. And it matters to us even from the ground up. Like we made sure that our CLI is actually really easy to use in comparison to other layer one projects. I think installing Ironfish is extremely easy. So yeah, once you have the latest version of node is just one command line tool to get it going. So npm install yeah. Ironfish, you have the full Ironfish SDK from just one command line tool. If you want to start the node, it's just Ironfish start. You know, if you want to do any commands, any wallet commands and so on, everything's very accessible from the command line tool. Point. I can validate that, by the way. This is like incredibly true. I mean, I was reading the documentation. I was like, oh, even I could do this. This is uh, this is nice. awesome. <laughs> yeah. And you definitely should. But yeah, I mean, to your point, usability does matter. So in a few weeks, we are releasing the desktop app for Ironfish. People have been asking for a wallet for a long time. So the Node app does have a built-in wallet as well. So the Node app is like a desktop experience for how to run a full-blown Ironfish node. Um, so you would have like a GUI that kind of displays what your node is doing. It would allow you to send, receive money and so on. But in the background actually is running a full-blown Ironfish node. And so you can see like all the peers that has connected to like the traffic and so on. So that is coming out shortly in roughly a couple of weeks. And so yeah, we're definitely excited to do that. But the way we kind of think about like launching is like, you know, how do you launch one thing and literally get like more feedback from your community and your users so you can iterate and can make a product that actually suits them well. And so for this node app experience, if you go into like the design channel from our discord, you can scroll up and see like all the feedback that we've collected from the community over the several months to make sure that it actually suits our needs. 
in some ways, it's probably a similar experience right now to people who want to try and use Lightning on Bitcoin, which mm. is you really need to be running your own full node in order to mm. participate in the network. Although I don't know that you necessarily have the, the same challenges in like peering to the other nodes in order to get scaled transactions. But at some point, do you imagine more of a lightweight experience where I don't need to run a node in order to have assets on the platform? Like somebody else is running a node for me, or I just have a lightweight wallet only that can connect to nodes that are run by somebody else and, and I can accomplish a transaction. Yeah, exactly. So Fox Wallet is a wallet that already integrated Ironfish and that is mobile wallet experience. So you can use Ironfish on your mobile phone today. Yeah, definitely, you know, we are looking into how do we have the MetaMask experience for Ironfish? Because right now, if you wanted to have like full privacy, you have to kind of download the full node. And I think that'll still like stay true in the long term as well. But the way Fox Wallet did it, for instance, is we kind of made it slightly difficult for them. Like I think what they did was a actually pretty impressive engineering feat to support Ironfish because for privacy coins, you know, like there's not like a node you can ask, like what's the balance of this wallet because everything's private. And so there's a lot of computational kind of like challenges in terms of like figuring out is it the mobile wallet that is doing the decryption where is it getting the information and so on and so for light clients there's kind of like two approaches one is you know you have a server and you give the view key to the server and then the server does all the heavy duty like decryption for you and then it gets you a lot closer to like the metamask and fura experience right so metamask relies on fura which is a third-party hosted node provider that gives metamask all the information it needs if the user is comfortable to give up some of the privacy meaning that they're comfortable giving out the view key to the server, then you get to that experience. The other alternative, which is more in line with how the Zcash like client server implementation works is the mobile wallet actually gets like almost like simplified block data. The decryption happens on the phone, meaning that the view keys never leave your device. Um, so the trade-off there is your phone does have to sync block data and your phone does have to attempt to decrypt those blocks in order to update your balance properly. So there's a bit more computation burden on the phone, but more privacy for the user. So those are the two different approaches. And we're actually looking into both of them because they serve different needs. Yeah, it's fascinating that I wasn't making the logical leap to, oh, without running the full node, it's really hard to deliver that complete privacy guarantee. But as you explained it, it makes total sense why why that would be a hard thing to do. One last technical question, and then I want to talk a little bit business and philosophy perspective. You mentioned something at the top of the conversation about a multi-asset feature, and mm -hmm. I didn't totally follow what that was, but it okay. sounded important. Can you unpack what that means? So on Ethereum, for instance, you can make an ERC-20 custom coin, right? On Ironfish, you can make a custom coin as well, even though we don't support smart contracts. Um, so a user could potentially you know, create their own version of whatever coin that they want in order to represent an asset. And we did that so that bridge operators Operators could mint their own wrapped assets of whatever asset they're bridging. So for instance, if a bridge operator wants to represent wrapped Bitcoin, then they would have to create a custom asset to represent wrapped Bitcoin. So that's kind of what that means. Oh, that's awesome. So Ironfish has, I think, attracted some interest from some of the top venture capital firms in the space. Andreessen Horowitz, Electric Capital, Sequoia, Balaji Srinivasan, I think is also on board as an advisor. I'm curious, what was the pitch that you used to bring them into this area? Because I think this privacy and crypto, there's two sides to it. There's people that are saying, hey, privacy is a right. You know, we should all be able to operate with that guarantee. 
identity. Like our data mm -hmm. is not publicly available to the world. And I think the other side of the argument is, well, that may be generally true, but in certain circumstances, like there are things more important than privacy, like protecting children, for example, or stopping terrorists, you know, who are about to do something awful. And I can imagine that for a venture capital firm, like wading into the middle of that debate, which it seems far from solved, would be like maybe something that would be a turnoff. But obviously you succeeded here. How did you approach that conversation? I had to imagine it came up in the in the fundraising process. So there's two sides of privacy. One is privacy is a human right, and we can talk about that more. The other one is privacy is very pragmatic. It's really hard for a business to do business in the open like that. And most like non-crypto companies are trying to crypto, they're kind of understanding that the lack of privacy actually does hamper their ability to interact with crypto. So so EY, for instance, which is one of the biggest uh, accounting firms in the world, you know, they have a protocol called Nightfall that is launching in Polygon, which is a privacy protocol. You know, JP Morgan has always had a crypto team and they used to support a project called Zether, which is another privacy protocol on top of Ethereum. I don't think it ever launched. And if I'm mistaken, that's great. But still, like they put in the effort to do that research. You know, Visa has an internal crypto team as well. And they really care about privacy, too, because if, you know, like think like if, if Visa were to support like, you know, stable coins and to some degree they're leaking the financial information of their customers. So privacy is a very pragmatic thing as well. Like if you're trying to bring crypto to like the traditional commerce world, just financial privacy is way more than a moral right to them, but literally necessity for them to operate their business. You know, so that's definitely one side of the coin. And the other side of the coin is privacy is by far a net good to the world. <laughs> and there are other ways that we can prevent bad actors from kind of entering the system. And that's why Ironfish does have view keys, for instance. A view key and Ironfish is a complete view key, meaning that it shows all the details about incoming transactions and all the details about the outgoing transactions. And so it's actually very much analogous to how the non-crypto financial world works today. So for instance, if you were a suspicious actor, a law enforcement agent would get a subpoena or a warrant to get access to your bank account. So there's probable cause, and then they get to see your bank statements based on that. And for Ironfish, it would work about the same. So if there was a suspicious actor, the view keys would allow someone to have a full audit trail for that account. I love the explanation that you gave there. I mean, the way that I've talked about this with people is like, if you imagine you're in line at the grocery store, you go to check out and the cashier's rung up your items, you swipe your credit card, no one in line behind you gets to know your bank account details, the balance of your checking account or your credit yeah. card bill or like all that information's private, but it's not anonymous. The mm -hmm. store is collecting your credit card information. It's passed through a payment network. Your bank you know, receives this as a charge ultimately at some point. All of those people are doing things like fraud checks to make sure that you didn't steal somebody's card to buy your groceries. There's a whole bunch of other things that happen in that transaction path, but they're private to the parties involved in the transaction, mm -hmm. as opposed to all the people standing in line behind you don't really get to participate. Whereas in the crypto world, it's like, well, no, everyone, not just in line behind you, but in the store, in the town, in yep. the entire world can theoretically like be a party to that transaction suddenly. And it's always struck me as being uncomfortable. And so, so I think the way that you set it up is great. 
Do you think that amongst uh, sort of policymakers and regulators, because you, you made a couple of good points there about, you know, E&Y, global accounting firm, and a number of the big banks and other financial firms are investing or at least trying to get academically competent in this area. Do you think the regulatory and policymaker side appreciates this or do they just see, oh, this tool for privacy is really going to get abused by criminals and therefore we can't allow it to exist? Yeah, so there's definitely concern from regulators of privacy in general. So our job is to convince them and to make them more comfortable with the technology and also like to explain to them that different privacy protocols work differently. Ironfish having that view key makes Ironfish analogous to the non-crypto traditional banking system. We don't need to reinvent the wheel on how we catch bad criminals because those things are already in place and those can be applied to how real entities support Ironfish. I think like the thing that we as a crypto community are still trying to figure out is what gets regulated? Does a protocol get regulated? Do the developers need to follow those rules? Or do the regulated entities need to follow those rules? And what are the rules? <laughs> so, <laughs> Those are probably a long list of questions that we may not get the chance to answer on the podcast. Yeah. I mean, this debate about like, does a node operator, are you facilitating a financial transaction right. because you run and host a node and the node is processing transactions on the network? Again, there's sort of two sides to it. It's like, well, you benefit financially in a lot of these networks by operating that node. Do you have an obligation to intermediate those transactions in some way? Or are you more like a cloud hosting provider where you provide network connectivity and power and you really don't have a direct responsibility in most cases for what's run on top of that server from a software standpoint? Right. I don't, I don't know if you have an opinion on that, where you fall on that position. Like, should node operators be treated as regulated financial entities or not? I mean, I would say no. So the other example is like, and it's an example that I've used before and other people have used as well. You know, let's say you're Verizon and there's a terrorist and the terrorist called in a bomb order using the Verizon cellular service. Who's at fault here? Is it Verizon, right? And I would argue, no. I would argue that the terrorist who called in the bomb order is the bad guy here, not Verizon. But then the question is like, well, what falls in Verizon, right? Do they now need to monitor every single phone call in order to figure out if there's a bomb threat being called. Okay, well, that would mean that 99.99% of their customers are gonna be like losing the privacy in order for you know for, for law enforcement to catch a bad actor. Is that a sacrifice that normal users are obligated to take? Or is the obligation of law enforcement to come up with better models to how to catch that terrorist, right? So there's always like questions of like, whose responsibility is it to catch those bad actors and how, right? So I think like from a protocol standpoint, a protocol should have the guardrails for regulated entities to catch bad actors, but it shouldn't do it itself, right? So for instance, I think it would be pretty misaligned with crypto ethos for the protocol itself to say like, I'm going to self-censor on the base layer of the protocol. And we have never seen that like work successfully either. I think that's a really interesting case, but a different question going back to your telecom example, you know, I think most telecoms are required to maintain call data records so mm -hmm. that when law enforcement says, oh, a bad person did something right. and we think there was a phone involved that may give us information to do something about it, they go and subpoena through due process those call data records, which feels analogous to your view key concept. Exactly. And so I don't want to skip over that because I feel like this is a novel part of the architecture. If you can maybe explain like practically how does the view key work? Like I possess something that unlocks the ability for 
someone else to be able to see balance and transaction history. And then I can share that either generally or selectively to anyone that I believe has a right to be in the know on my transactions. Is that the right way to think about it? That's exactly it. In Ethereum or Bitcoin, you have like a private and a public key. And for our interest, you have a private public key and a view key. And I want to make that distinction really clear that the Iron Fish does not have a global view key. There is no global view key. There is no backdoor. So when you create the wallet, your wallet has three parts to your wallet, which is a private, public, and view key. So whoever creates the wallet, that is a person or entity or whoever who has the ability to give the view key to someone else. And just like you described, the view key gives you a full and complete transactional history for that wallet. And one way to argue that is, you know, it's actually even better than relying on the banking system because it gives you the ultimate truth that's like cryptographically backed <laughs> rather than a paper trail the banks would provide you. Yeah, one of the things that's really interesting is at Chainalysis, we've been talking to a couple of different protocols that have a similar kind of view key feature. And one of the things that they're hopeful for is that exchanges or traditional banks for that matter will start accepting these view keys. And so you have privacy on the network layer, mm -hmm. but the exchange is able to validate and accept a deposit without holding your funds because, oh, it sees that the previous possessor of those funds was a mixer or some other privacy producing feature of the mm -hmm. network. And it's like, no, 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 I can assert that my funds aren't the result of illicit activity, that I'm not a sanctioned individual. And here's my proof. Right. I'm actually depositing it to myself for entirely legitimate purposes. And so it, it's an interesting step forward that benefits everybody. Like safer ecosystem, as you said, cryptographically proven rather than the hand-drawn audit trail that we might find in, in TradFi. Very cool. Last question for you before we wrap up. You've just launched Mainnet in the last month. Huge milestone. Where does it go from here? Like what's the horizon for the rest of the year for people that want to follow along the Ironfish journey? So again, like everything we do is like very iterative. Like we launch something, we get feedback, we make it better, and then we progress from there. So we launched Mainnet and we're getting a lot of feedback from miners, exchangers, wallet providers, and so on of things that we could do better for Ironfish today. The very short term is like kind of taking that feedback and adding different RPC APIs that people are requesting, adding optimizations to our networking layer. We're listening to miners and miners are saying like, you know, every transaction has a zero proof attached to it. So validation takes longer. So block template generation takes longer. You know, how do we fix that or how do we optimize that? So right now, like we're kind of working through those immediate responses to, to our community, making sure that everyone's happy, the ecosystem is healthy and so on. So that's like a very, very short-term solution. We do everything open source. If you want to see what we're doing, you can either go to our GitHub, go to our Discord, go to our Twitter. Like we're extremely open with what is happening right now. We even have monthly Discord updates. Like the entire engineering team kind of gets on there. We open up the Q&As and people can ask us live questions. They're like, what is the engineering team working on right now? So again, very transparent. In terms of like slightly longer term, like end of year, our goal is definitely like, how do we bring different assets on top of Ironfish? That is my personal goal. <laughs> so I'm going to kind of speak from more of a personal level. You know, I do want to see other assets from other chains come onto Ironfish. And so we are trying to figure out how to do that. And so the goal, again, my personal goal for Ironfish is to have at least one bridge to either Ethereum or Bitcoin and support at least one asset from one of those bridges. So we're definitely working hard towards that. 
And again, like just getting to that experience in a way that is seamless, intuitive, and so on, it's going to require a lot of work. The desktop app, as I mentioned, is also coming out very shortly. So the team is also working on that. Improving our documentation so that integrators, blog providers, and so on can have a much easier time working with Ironfish. That's been a really huge focus as well. And just growing our community. Like we, we may not launch, we set up the foundation and we're setting up the grants proposal process. We want to invite more people to build and to provide privacy to other assets. And so setting all that up is definitely a focus for the next uh, six to 12 months as well. Outstanding. That's a lot of exciting stuff. We'll link to the social media handles and your Perfect. regular AMAs so that if any of the listeners are, are interested to join in, they can easily do that. Elena, this was a terrific conversation. I feel like I'm leaving much smarter than I was when we began. So Great. thank you so much for spending the time with us. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode. Our team has been working hard to make our content available on all the major platforms. So right now, take out your phone, head over to your favorite social media app. You can subscribe to our new TikTok, our revamped YouTube, sign up for our LinkedIn newsletter, and of course, follow us on Twitter or Telegram. Just search for at Chainalysis. Now, before we go, if you're a crypto investigator listening to this podcast, you've probably been following the Viper compiler vulnerability that led to a multi-million dollar exploit of Curve Finance. Well, the story has a mostly happy ending. A few days ago, the hacker returned 4,820 AL ETH and 2,258 ETH to Alchemix. That's worth about 12.7 million. The transactions were accompanied by an encrypted message in which the hacker wrote, I saw some ridiculous views, so I want to clarify that I'm refunding you not because you can find me, it's because I don't want to ruin your project. Maybe it's a lot of money for a lot of people, but not for me. I'm smarter than all of you. Well, that remains to be seen. Other NFT lending protocols like JPEG also confirm receipt of the majority of its stolen funds, which were worth around 10 million. To get the full story of the initial exploit and graphs that trace the movement of the funds and to read up on the aftermath of this vulnerability, as always, head down to the link in the show notes.